A quick note, this is a 10-part chronological docuseries. We recommend starting at Chapter 1. And for the best immersive listening experience, headphones are suggested. During the Vietnam War, hundreds of American aviators were shot down, imprisoned, and tortured for as many as eight long years. Exactly 50 years ago, the Nixon administration saved 591 of those prisoners of war from captivity. Many of them are still with us and willing to tell their stories like never before, alongside newly surfaced recordings from the Johnson and Nixon presidencies. This is the premier podcast from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in partnership with Foundwave Productions and created in honor of Ross Perot Sr. Additional support comes from In-N-Out Burger, proud to support veterans and their families. This is Captured, shot down in Vietnam. You've now heard the backgrounds and shot-down stories of two men, Commander Everett Alvarez Jr. in 1964 and Captain Eugene Red McDaniel in 1967. Since they were captured three years apart and sent to different prisons, their experiences were certainly unique. In fact, all POWs had different and defining experiences based on their health conditions, willingness to talk, encounters with guards, and other factors. In this docu-series, we're using the plight of these two men to highlight and demonstrate what the hundreds of prisoners went through and overcame, since many of them, unfortunately, cannot tell their tales today. On today's episode, we focus again on Everett. He will talk about his early adaptation to his new reality and to his North Vietnamese captors, as well as their adaptation to him. Remember, he was the first guy. We begin where we last left him, floating in the Hanoi Bay, after ejecting at Mach 1, having just let his wedding band sink to the bottom of the ocean so his captors wouldn't use his wife against him. When I was captured, I was just, to be honest, totally bewildered. I was in shock. My body was in shock because I had just ejected at a very low altitude and very high speed. And thinking back, I remember a lot of things, but the one thing that stands out is I'm in the water and I'm looking around. It dawned on me that today was Wednesday and on the ship, it's roast beef night. I realized I was gonna miss roast beef night. Now, don't ask me why I thought that. All these crazy thinking things. After things sort of cleared up and I saw the boats around me at a distance, the Vietnamese little fishing boat, about four or five people, well, they were all militia. They wanted me to surrender. So I eventually put my arms up. They came close, hauled me aboard. I, I couldn't understand what they were saying. At that point, for some reason, I started talking to them in Spanish saying, what, what, in Spanish, que, no entiendo, no don't ask me why. <laughs> I thought I was going to maybe foil their plans or whatever. 
When I was relating the story later to one of the guys in the camp in one of the cells said, hey, you should have told him you were a lost Spaniard looking for gold. Everett was taken to a small town Vietnamese jail. At that time, he thought it was the worst place he would ever lay his head. But that was only because he hadn't yet been taken to the Hanoi Hilton. People were coming in and taking my picture. They're big on taking pictures. And they led me to a uh, cell, opened it up. I stepped in and there were two Vietnamese prisoners there. And by this time, the exhaustion set in. There was a platform and it had straw mats on. And the two individuals, as I realized it was their bed, at the end of the platform was a long bar. My ankles were in like a horse collar, ankle irons we called them. So you couldn't move your legs. I saw that they were putting my feet in these and then they ran the bar through and it locks on the outside of the cell. I just sort of just plopped back and I was out like a light. I woke up the next day. I could hardly move my body really because of the strain. They walked me to interrogation first time. Two Vietnamese officers, both spoke English. I gave them name, rank, service number, date of birth. That's what we're supposed to do. And they said, why, why? I said, well, that's all I'm supposed to give you. <laughs> and they said, you know, according to the treatment of the POW, they said, you're not a POW, there's no war. There's no declaration of war. Interestingly, the Americans and the North Vietnamese really didn't agree on what exactly a POW was because there was no declared war between the two countries, which was true. Alvin Townley, author, historian, and expert on the Vietnam POW crisis. The Americans went to great lengths to not make it a war. and The Johnson administration wanted to downplay it. I've tried to do my best to, uh, I've lost about 264 lives up to now. And I could lose 265,000 mighty easy, and I'm trying to keep those zeros down. I've got a pretty tough problem, and I'm not all wise. I pray every night to get direction and judgment and leadership that permit me to do what's right. They really didn't like to use the term prisoners of war, because that would really signify there was an actual war. But the U.S. very much wanted North Vietnam to honor the Geneva Convention, which governed the treatment of prisoners of war in war, war conditions. And so you know, America, in some ways, was trying to have it both ways. You know, have the Geneva Conventions be in effect, but also not acknowledge that there was an actual war. The Geneva Conventions are a collection of international treaties defining the basic rights of wartime prisoners, including protections for the wounded and sick. They certainly did not allow torture. Without honoring them, Any treatment of Everett and other POWs that the North Vietnamese desired was fair game. They started telling me how I was going to be facing a a tribunal. I would be uh, punished, maybe executed, on and on. If you weren't a prisoner of war, what was your crime? My crime was I had attacked the Vietnamese people and the military. From the North Vietnamese perspective, these guys they were capturing were criminals bombing their country illegally. 
You know, we had created a lot of damage and, you know, of war. It was an act of war. It was a, you know, a military action, the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution versus a declaration of war. North Vietnam was literally getting bombed on a daily basis. And I don't think they really cared that much about Geneva Conventions. I think their daily reality was survival. So it was really an interesting situation. And the North Vietnamese had some legal ground, you know, not to necessarily honor the Geneva Convention, but... When they tried to get the Americans to to violate that convention and give them more than their name, rank, service number, and date of birth, the Americans very much held to the military code of conduct and the provisions of the Geneva Convention. I wasn't answering their questions. I didn't want to tell them anything. They took me back to my cell. All I really did was sleep. One night, in the middle of the night, here comes a fellow, one of the officers that spoke English. And he says, look, he says, you are our prisoner. You're not a prisoner of war. And you don't want to answer any question. But then he reached in his little bag and he started pulling out American magazines, Time, uh, Newsweek, U.S. News and World Report, uh, newspapers, the uh, San Francisco Chronicle, the San Jose Mercury News, everything had my picture plastered all over it. All about me, my bio, pictures of my family, a picture when I was in high school, where I grew up, what my, you know, my dad's was there. Well, you know, what do I do now? I said to myself, and I said, well, so much for name, rank, service number, and date of birth. It was still the middle of night early. They put me in a Jeep, and we left. I could tell, even though I was not supposed to look out. But then, you know, with all the noise of the city. We drove, and that afternoon, we pulled into Hanoi, building that had a, a big door, big prison. We later named the Hanoi Hilton. I was taken out. I was put into a room. And I, I became the first occupant of the Hanoi Hilton. First American POW. There were several harsh elements to imprisonment in the Hanoi Hilton. You know, it was just a old, nasty prison. You know, an antiquated building already in the 1960s. It was never built for holding, you know, American pilots. Certainly not as many as ended up in North Vietnam. Prisoners would say that you could just kind of feel the screams of, you know, a hundred years of colonial injustice when you walked in there for all the colonials that were imprisoned there by the French and, you know, horrible things were, were done to them. So the cells were small, they were dirty, you know, they had their bucket they had to carry around. So the conditions alone were pretty bad. Of course, at the beginning, I was totally bewildered. I was not a POW, there was no war. Okay, what am I? What are they going to do to me? Wallo was the name of the prison. It means in Vietnamese fiery forge, but uh, we call it the Hanoi Hilton. And it was a prison that was full of men and women prisoners, as they were told me later, thieves. Women were prostitutes. They were um, criminals. When I arrived at the Hanoi Hilton, I was in a room which had access to a little courtyard. On the corner was a latrine, that style where they have little footstools and you squat 
and you do what you're going to do. So I learned to do that right away. When I didn't have access, they had a bucket, an old rusty bucket by the door that led to the courtyard. It had a a bed, which was a, a rack with boards. I put my straw mat there, my mosquito net, had a little table with two chairs, but I was I was locked up. I mean, that was a big room compared to later on. I was fed twice a day, in the morning and in the evening. Immediately, I, the food just didn't agree with me. It was hard to digest. I, I find it hard to describe some real greasy stuff uh, that I found I couldn't eat, but I had to eat. I had to sustain myself, and I lost a lot of weight in the first, uh, about the first three, three to four weeks. At one point, I was really feeling sick, so I asked the guard if I could have that broth, that tea. It turned out to be like a chicken broth. And that evening, he came with the food. I figured it was a broth, but here, I opened it up, and it was sliced bread. It was like French bread. And, God, I looked at that. And I pulled up the other one, and here was an omelet, a real omelet. And it had French fries, you know, the French influence. And and I just, I gobbled that down, and I started eating that, and, and I started to cry. I actually started crying, because the food was so good. And I, and I just scarfed it down. Everett would quickly learn that very simple joys, even sometimes humor, would be one of the only things to get him through the following years. Those fleeting moments, though, were almost always short-lived. It wasn't long after he was buttered up with the good meal that the North Vietnamese began to use their only American prisoner. They had started to give me propaganda things to read in, in English and you know, sheets of paper with stories on it about French colonialism. And that's where the, the rub between the North Vietnamese and the Americans started because they wanted propaganda statements. They wanted intelligence. A lot of the purpose of the propaganda was internal. And maybe they thought that people in Europe or other countries might give some credence to it as well. I, I don't think it was that effective in changing the Americans' opinion of the war. It graduated to recording, making tapes for the radio, the camp radio uh, speakers. Whether it was their propaganda or whether it was just American public sentiment, I think they realized that America was just not going to tolerate a long and costly conflict in Southeast Asia. And the quicker they could turn American sentiment against the war, the quicker it was going to end and they could achieve their, their end. They wanted me to help them. Like I was one of them. I said, you know, to myself, I can't, I can't do this because this, this would be collaborating with them. I can't help. I, I cannot help them. The Americans who lost everything once they got shot down, they lost everything except really their sense of honor and their will to survive. So I didn't answer anything. And they said, will you help us? And I said, I cannot do this. And so they sent me back to my cell, and I figured, okay, now the rubber's going to hit the road. 
couple of days later, they took me out of that cell and moved me to a smaller cell across on the other side of the courtyard. And I was there for maybe several weeks. And then one night they took me. They interrogated me again and I was not cooperating at all. I just couldn't. So then they took me from that cell to a tiny seven foot by seven foot cell that had the two beds, concrete beds. You could put your straw mat on that. There was space about a mm, foot and a half that you could walk in between. And it was three paces, the door, three paces, the wall. And so I said, okay, this is my existence. What were you thinking about that I first couple months? I wasn't thinking much. I was... Uh, um, I wasn't thinking much at all. That first Christmas was the loneliest Christmas, you know, with my memories. You either get out or you get in. I don't think there's much more neutral. I think we've tried all the uh, all the neutral things. Six months after I was shot down, the war was on. Back in Washington, during the first six months of 1965, President Lyndon B. Johnson was debating whether to turn the Vietnam conflict into a full-fledged war. His Vice President Hubert Humphrey advised against it. His longtime mentor and friend, Senator Richard Russell, advised against it. Under Secretary of State George Ball advised against it. His opposers said the war would have to be limited in scope, which meant to them that the job could not be finished without an open-ended commitment. Much later, LBJ would take accountability for leading many Americans and innocent Vietnamese to their deaths. There's no easy choice when you're chief executive of the most powerful country on earth, but the choice to go to war in 1965 was LBJ's and LBJ's alone. I held up till February. After I came in in November, I went from November to November, from November to February. But uh, they, they kept coming, they just kept coming, and I couldn't stand it any longer. I had to get out or do it. Now I'm doing it till they're restrained and with the best judgment that I know how. I got the newsletter that the bombing had resumed and they had shot down another prisoner, Bob Shoemaker. Six months after Everett's capture, Lieutenant Commander Robert H. Shoemaker would become the second American POW held in Hanoi Hilton when his F-8D aircraft was shot down by cannon fire on February 11, 1965. By the end of his captivity, eight years later, almost to the day, Bob would be promoted to the rank of commander and become renowned as one of the most active resistors, credited with devising ingenious communication systems like the famed TAP code, which we'll explain in a later episode. And I knew when I heard and Bob been shot down and all this, that, okay, the war was on. I confirmed that because one day, I, a few days later after that, I'm looking out at the peephole and, you know, and the guy's bringing in the food. Next thing I know, he's got my rack and another rack. 
I never had contact with him, but I knew he was there. One of the things people sometimes fail to do is to look at the POW situation as a human experience. Some of these prison guards were Everett's age or younger. Many of them had never seen or spoken to an American in their lives. And Everett was the first American inside these walls. He was adapting and getting used to his new life as a POW with no scheduled release and no eventual end in sight. And they were adapting to their role as his captor, also without truly understanding why or for how long. Although considered the enemy, some of these guards were just curious, interested, and confused kids. Yeah, the POWs were normal people with a great sense of honor, put into extraordinary circumstances. They were just people at the end of the day, and the guards and the interrogators were just people doing their job. They were basically uh, young officers, Vietnamese officers that would become interrogators, English interrogators, and they were practicing their stuff on us. Of course, being the first one there, they would try on me, and, you know, there was a lot of officers learning English, and so you'd be in there sitting on a stool listening to them actually rehearse their English, you know, talking about behaving and this and that. These were guards and officers that probably didn't really want to be assigned to a prison camp, but they had to show up in the morning just like everybody else and do their job. And after a few weeks, they started interrogating me. They said, we are here to learn, and we're going to interrogate you. And it was at that point that I, I really banked on the fact that they thought I didn't really know much because I was so young. And I played that up. They started basic things like name and this. and what. I did answer their questions about myself and biography the interrogations went from one day to the next, to the next, to the next. And the questions became more detail-oriented. I don't think they viewed Ev as an evil person. There in the early days, there's probably a little more communication between Ev Alvarez and maybe Bob Shoemaker and the guards there. I started fabricating things. I says, we had jobs. We were assigned jobs. And I was so new, I had just reported to the squadron. Then they said, uh, and what was your job? And I, I told them that I was put in charge of the popcorn machine. And the popcorn machine was just something that blew, blew them away. They had no idea what I was talking about. They wanted to know about this popcorn machine. Oh, so I spent, you know, I spent days talking about popcorn and how it's made, the pops and the... Right, they wrote everything down, but you know what? They had no clue. Corn? What pop? You pop corn? You know, corn. Corn. Oh, and I would drop a picture of the corn, the little corn things, and you it pops. They saw somebody who's probably around their own age. I was pretty young. And so they just started a conversation to find out about a culture that they didn't really know about. Why do you think they wanted to know such trivial things in addition to the big military questions? Well, to me, that was trivial. To them, it was totally new and what have you. And over the you know, period of time, I had given them the impression I was a good guy. I was sympathetic to them and their cause, you know. Eventually, they caught me in a lie because I had said I was not part of the group that, that was to attack. And I started to sort of cry 
what, and, and why? Why did you lie to us? And I says, because I thought you were going to kill me. You know, this fellow, my interrogator, says, oh, no, 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 we're not going to kill you. We want you to learn about us and our cause for freedom against totalitarian oppression and colonialism and on and on. And it hit me. Yeah, they weren't going to let me die. They weren't going to kill me because I, I was in their news. I was in the news. They had me, and it wouldn't look too good. Christmas came close. I was getting their newsletter, English translation, the newsletters. I read everything. Then there was a, a, a delegation that came to Vietnam to this international conference for all the peace-loving countries in the world, uh, you know, to unite against neocolonialists, aggressors throughout the world. They came and said, would you like to go meet a delegation? I said, all right. <laughs> you know, I had nothing else to do. And nothing else was on my schedule. <laughs> Just a few months after being shot down, Everett experienced one of the defining moments of his captivity, one that would reaffirm his commitment to his duty and to his country, one that may be hard for a modern audience to understand, but helps put us into the mind of a member of the American military, especially one as heroic and honorable as Everett. They took me, of course, to Hanoi, and when I got out of the Jeep, I went into a building, a guest house, I guess, and it was to meet the delegate, an American, they told mm. me, an American citizen. When he came into the room, it was a, an African-American fellow. His name was Robert Williams, and he lived in free Cuba. He had asked to see me. I'm sitting there across, there was a coffee table, and it had fruit, and it had cookies, and it had stuff. So I'm sitting there stuffing myself with cookies, <laughs> listening to him. The crux was, he says, would you like me to ask President Ho Chi Minh if you could go home with me? I said, well, sure. <laughs> go, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Well, wait a minute. He says, you got to do something to help yourself, too. You got to write a letter to him and ask him for your release. I left it at that. The visit was over. I went back, and next day, here comes the interrogator. So, do you want to write a letter to Ho Chi Minh asking for your release? And how good we have been to you. You want to tell them that, and you understand, you know, their fight for freedom and against the colonialism and, uh, and the aggressors around the world and the oppressors and on and on. I said, sure, I'll write a letter. So they gave me paper and pen, and I wrote a letter. To whom it may concern, I feel I have been a good prisoner. I have been respectful to the Vietnamese people, and I would like to ask you for my release. To whom it may concern. And I signed it. Oh, then he next day he came back storming back. You, you, you know, be so disrespectful. You do not say to this president Ho Chi Minh. You said to whom it may concern, and you didn't say anything, you know, back about the Vietnamese people's fight for freedom and independence and all this and that, and that you are sorry for you know your crime and all that. And I said, well, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm not going to say that. You see. Everett didn't want to give North Vietnam President Ho Chi Minh the respect of addressing him by name. He also certainly wasn't going to fabricate or positively exaggerate his treatment. With that letter, 
Everett may very well have sealed his fate for the next eight years. Would he truly have been sent home if he had written it the way he was told? We can't say for sure. What we can say is, there are few better examples of standing up for what's right and standing up for one's country in wartime than this act of defiance from Everett Alvarez. This moment, though, would be the end of Everett's honeymoon time in prison. No more conversations about popcorn. No more friendly guards. The illegal torture would begin, starting with the abuse of light. The lights are on all day. The lights are on all night when it's dark. The big effort in that point of time was to keep my sanity. When our other hero, Red McDaniel, would become a fellow prisoner in 1967, he would have no time to adjust. His captivity dove right into full-fledged torture, abuse, and horrific conditions. It's like taking a rope and tying a knot into it and hanging on for six years. That's a very descriptive term of our captivity. Now that you know how these men adapted to the early days of imprisonment, next time we'll tell you what they had to endure and how they managed to survive. When you heard the, the guy coming with his keys jangling, especially at night, you knew somebody was going to go out. And you prayed it wasn't you. And if it was you and it was your turn to go do something, whatever it was, you, had a, you just had to face it. And if it was somebody else's cell, you prayed for it. That's next week on Captured. Captured, Shot Down in Vietnam is a docu-series from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library and Foundation. Produced by the team at Foundwave and respectfully created in honor of Ross Perot Sr. If you're interested in learning more about Vietnam POWs, you can visit the exhibition Captured at the Nixon Library in Yorba Linda, California. Original music compositions, Foley effects, and mastering from Jonathan Rock. Produced and edited by Steph Weaver-Weinberg. Research, background, and history from Jason Schwartz. Executive production from Joe Lopez and the team at the Richard Nixon Foundation and Kaylee Mason from Perot Family Collections. Co-executive production, interviewing, and hosting from me, Tyler Russell McCusker. Find future episodes of this show and bonus content, including archival photos and audio, at CapturedPodcast.com. If you enjoyed our production, please consider leaving a review and clicking follow on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.